When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, and welcome to this spooky edition of Pop Culture Confidential. We are going to talk about that genre that, in a time of industry and box office turmoil, gets theater seats filled and streamers streaming. We cannot get enough of horror, of collective jump scares, and of innovative frights that resonate down in the deepest recesses of our modern anxious psyches. For the past few years, so-called elevated horror has attracted studios and trailblazing directors like Jordan Peele, Jennifer Kent, Robert Eggers, Ari Aster, and many more. And 2022 has been a really, really great year for horror. I'm so pleased to dive into everything scary with a film critic I've wanted to talk to for a long time. He's a writer at The Wrap and is the co-host of the podcasts on the critically acclaimed network. William Bibiani, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here, and I love talking about one of my very favorite subjects. So let's do it. As I was saying, it's been an incredible year for horror. We're going to get into that, into the blood and guts. But first, lots of people use the expression elevated horror to describe it the past few years. What is that? Elevated horror is a term that got coined and almost immediately rejected by the horror community at large. So it's really funny that we're still (laughs) talking about it. Uh, It's a term that got coined that suggested that there are certain relatively contemporary horror movies that are not just making horror movies, they're making horror movies with great artistic ambition and emotional depth, as if they haven't been doing that since the silent era. There's something frustratingly condescending about the very premise, as though uh, there are other horror movies uh, that that just are not even worth it. They're just just poo-pooing The Exorcist. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like The Exorcist would be considered an elevated horror movie today, but back when it came out, it was a horror movie. Horror is a genre that a lot of people want to pigeonhole. They want to say it's all this, it's all that. It's all uh, violent or prurient. Or uh, uh, Siskel and Ebert back in the 80s used to poo-poo the uh, horror genre quite frequently, actually. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to become a critic, because I felt like it wasn't getting a fair shake. They would refer to that whole slasher cycle, many of which were very good movies, many of which were also terrible, but they just derided them as what they called dead teenager movies. That's all they were. They were just a body count. Kind of disregarded regarding the the possibility that some of those movies could have depth, uh, which has always frustrated me. And I think the idea that elevated horror is a topic that keeps coming up over and over again means that people want to hang on to that horror. They, they want to say that certain horror movies are superior in their constructs to others. And I, I disagree with that personally. But I will say this. I do think we're living in a particularly exciting renaissance for the horror genre, in which there are many horror movies which are as good as any of the best horror movies ever made, whether they are super serious examinations of the human psyche or uh, just fun pulse-pounding thrillers, or in some cases, family-friendly horror-themed films, uh, it's a really, really good time to be a horror fan right now, whatever kind of horror you're into, whether it's just one kind or all of it. We were saying 2022, I mean, these are just a few of the titles from this year. Fill in any of of your favorites. But we have Crimes of the Future, Resurrection, Mm -hmm. Pearl, The Black Phone, Barbarian, Nope, Smile. And then, of course, Halloween Ends and these bigger ones, Hellraisers and those franchises. Is there anything particular you see that in 2022, why all these movies have come out now? Well, I mean, the whole industry is still reeling from uh, the pandemic when there was a complete shutdown of production. And uh, this is an interesting year because this is the year when a lot of the movies that had been kind of held off Mm. for a while or got delayed because the pandemic got pushed to 2022. But it's also a year in which, for, for obvious reasons, Hollywood doesn't have quite as much gigantic studio product. 
as it used to. It doesn't have all of the gigantic movies that would have been in heavy production in 2020 and 2021. So there's been a lot of room for movies, even big movies, for example, like Top Gun Maverick, for example, is one of the biggest movies of the year. Uh, and that's a movie that opened to really huge Not numbers. Not just of no the surprise. year, right? I yeah. mean, this is- one of the best, <laughs> Yeah, one of the biggest ever. And But I think one of the big reasons for its success isn't just that it's a good movie. I'm not arguing that. Isn't just that it was a successful movie, but it came out in a summer where there weren't three movies opening on several thousand screens every single weekend. It had the freedom to find and keep an audience over time. And that's something that we just haven't had the luxury to do in Hollywood for a long time. It's been quite a glut. And with that, there has been a lot more freedom for horror movies. There are good horror movies that come out every single year. You could point to any single year and I can show you probably at least two dozen great horror movies that came out of it. But there has been an opportunity for those movies to find their audience, to reach their audience, and to really excel in the long run in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible in 2019. So I think it's actually a really exciting time in the industry right now. I think there's actually an unusually healthy diet that we have right now of media where there's room for plenty of giant blockbusters, but there's also room for smaller movies, whether they are horror films or even just interesting indies like Everything Everywhere All at Once, right. which ended up being a, a surprise box office sensation in the first half of the year. They have the freedom to do that because there aren't eight, like there aren't like 80 giant movies constantly squeezing everything out of theaters. And horror is also a genre that people like to see in the theaters, which is, of mm -hmm. course, a big deal that people haven't been going as much to the theaters, but people like that collective jump scare. Something like Smile, the movie with mm -hmm. uh, Kevin Bacon and Cara Sedgwick's daughter, Sosie. She plays a therapist who becomes haunted by hallucinations of, after witnessing one of her patients die of a suicide. This movie had a $17 million budget, and last I read, has made $139 million at the box office. Yeah. And I mean... That was originally going to go straight to streaming. And then they actually, they, they did some test audience numbers and they realized, oh, wait, this is hitting really hard. And now they're making bank on it. So you never know. It's amazing. Now, that, this is a lovely little deal for producers, which I understand that a lot of these smart new movies really are making a big buck for producers yeah. with a smaller budget. Well, I mean, that's always been a big part of the appeal of the genre. Horror has been consistently financially successful throughout literally the entire history of cinema. It's one of the few genres that can claim that, that it's never really gone out of fashion. It is mutated, and you can see very different versions of horror films taking root in different decades and generations, and sometimes year to year. But it's always a big draw. And a big part of that is because it is maybe the epitome of the communal film going experience. You know, remember when uh, uh, there was this weird uh, trend on Twitter where people were passing around this video of the end of Avengers Endgame, but you could hear the live audience reaction, which was cool. I admit that whole ending is this gigantic feast of fan service and just hearing people go, oh, my God, they brought back all those people they said they were going to bring back. Oh, and, it's, and listen, that's cool. I was the exact same way. I thought it was really super neat. But when a horror movie, you get that kind of mass audience reaction in the case of something like Smile, which is just full of uh, a weird and unexpected jump scares you get that every couple of minutes yeah and that's something that even though these movies work great at home in a communal experience they're actually I'll, I'll use the term that is elevating the experience that is heightening it because you're in a crowd of people you are sharing an experience simultaneously that's why theaters that that's the value of theaters you know movies didn't start out in theaters movies started out in nickelodeons you know, like it used to be you put you put a you put a, a coin in a slot. Yeah. And then you press your face into a visor and then you watched a, a, a video basically on a, a screen a little larger than a credit card. No, not much longer than a TikTok. That was what movies were. They expanded into more communal experiences over time. So that's a, that's a slight oversimplification, but still, there's a reason why we, that thrives. And another thing that they seem really good at, even from the days of the Blair Witch Project, the, the marketing of these mm. movies, like the marketing for Smile. Talk about that. Oh my God, the marketing for Smile. And honestly, good for them for going the full nine, because it is so easy to just put out posters and trailers and do a press tour. The marketing for Smile, because the whole 
premise of smile and it's one of the things reasons why i think smile is hitting as hard as it is because it's something just really simple and tangible about it it is about someone smiling really creepy that's a big part of it that's how the the apparition in the movie presents itself as you're looking at a whole group of people and then there's someone then they're just looking at you they're staring right with their laser eyes and they've got this weird smile <laughs> that's completely incongruous and vaguely threatening and one of the things that they did in order to promote the movie was they hired performers to go to public events like baseball games and hide in the audience like right in front of where the cameras were going to show the crowd reaction with like a shirt that says smile and then they were just doing a little <laughs> i can't do it i don't i don't have the the adjustable jaw but like it's that's really clever you gotta give them credit for that you gotta you gotta appreciate because that's how you make a movie uh, 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 sell. You know, some movies have a built-in imprimatur because they're part of a giant franchise. If you're trying to sell a movie to an audience, especially an audience that isn't already familiar with it, the best thing to do is to make it feel like a cultural happening. You have to be a part of this. Remember when Get Out came out? Oh, God, it was yeah. a gigantic <laughs> smash hit. Jordan Peele was best known for comedy. It was considered a, a, a really weird risk for his career. Looking back, how, how simple a time that was. But when that movie came out, it was so successful. It was so brilliant. It was so topical and it was so relevant to everything that was going on that it wasn't just, you got to see this movie. It's really good. It was, you have to see this movie. It is the movie right now. It is the movie we need to be able to talk about with our friends and, and so that you understand where the conversation is and something like the smile uh, marketing gimmick, which yeah, it's just a marketing gimmick, but it tells you, man, I got to find out what the heck this smile thing is. That That's something I need to be a part of. That's that's something that's happening. Yeah, right it becomes now. a and conversation. Becomes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I understand that, of course, this genre, it, it lends itself well to this. But I, why don't other genres do this as much? All these smart, well thought out conversation pieces, so to speak, ahead of a movie. Mm. I mean, it could be done more. And I think some movies lend itself more to that than others. Horror movies tend to operate on a couple of different levels simultaneously whereas something like say a serious drama uh is trying to be usually there are exceptions but it's usually trying to be immersive serious you know we're taking this seriously this is a serious somber occasion we're going to explore the events that occur in the power of the dog you really don't see it's hard to imagine a marketing stunt like, oh, and a whole bunch of baseball games, you're going to see a bunch of guys dressed like Benedict Cumberbatch lanyarding a lasso <laughs> in order to draw a business for Power of the Dog, wearing Power of the Dog shirts. There's something about that that feels but incongruous with the movie. But Keith could come out and okay, that would be cool. I'm something gonna, for Char. That could, be, that could be fun. But the thing is, is that th this kind of marketing stunt raises awareness of the movie as an artificial construct. And that's something that horror movies are kind of allowed to do because horror movies, and I think to a different extent, comedies are, are very much like this as well. But horror movies are very distinctly allowed to interact with the audience in a more direct way. It's not about right. losing yourself in a narrative. We are allowed to call attention to ourselves. We are allowed to do things explicitly to get a rise out of you. And that way, it's almost like seeing like a Las Vegas show or a magic act where you are getting lost in it. But every once in a while, like, wow, how did they do that? Or, oh my God, I've never seen someone played alive like that before <laughs> or just oh my god that jump scare was literally just for the audience it was just there to release our tension and because of that i think it's more in keeping with the sort of the vibe of the horror genre uh to let it be a little more theatrical even in the marketing you know william castle uh is a filmmaker who i'm enormously fond of and throughout the mid 20th century he was one of the titans of the independent film world because he would make these low budget horror movies and the movies themselves they're better than most people give him credit for but the big deal was the marketing he marketed an experience he would not just sell this horror movie with vincent price and it's called the tingler and it's about a monster that like jumps on your back and you know attaches itself to you and like goes ah uh he would also add to the theater seats with buzzers built into them so that 
in the movie randomly they would be seats randomly scattered throughout the theater and there's a scene in the movie where the lights go out and someone yells the tingler the tingler is loose in the theater scream for your lives and if you're easily susceptible and didn't notice the buzzer attached to your seat you might all of a sudden feel what feels like a monster <laughs> attached to you and some of his gimmicks were were less ornate than that there would be like uh, uh, the coward's corner where like if you're too scared to see the whole movie you can leave and stand in the coward's corner and you can't get your money back or uh, you would be like okay and then at this point we're going to let a rubber skeleton like fly on like a wire towards the audience it's a show not every horror movie is built like that it's kind of hard to imagine that working with something like I don't know Hereditary or The Witch but a lot of horror movies are and embracing a little bit of that theatricality tends to work because people enjoy it and I'm also wondering if having coming from an independent world, maybe not having the huge budget makes you become a little bit more creative, even yeah. on the marketing side. You were mentioning hereditary and things like that. A24, a lot of people say right. that they really changed the face of horror movies this past decade. What have they done? A24, uh, which has released a lot of great horror movies like uh, Midsommar, uh, they did uh, uh, Green Room, they did uh, uh, The Witch, which I think is one of the best horror movies of the last 10 years. That's just to name a few. They've done many. They are an interesting group. They really, really are. They have, they, they don't necessarily produce all of their films in-house. They acquire a lot of them. Uh, but they have a particular taste. They seem to have a knack for acknowledging that right now, I think in the last 10 years or so in particular, People are dealing with a lot more intense, uh, how would I put this? Life is really hard. Yes, and <laughs> we have we some are, anxieties. <laughs> we are hyper aware of it right now. We've had economic collapse and immense civil unrest, uh, oppression in the highest forms of government in some cases. Uh, the world seems on the brink of war. Uh, it really doesn't seem like the time to sort of downplay our fears. And not only down, not downplay them, but also it seems like the time to take them really seriously. So a lot of films from A24 are dealing with serious social anxieties, and they're not afraid to just be incredibly uh, blunt and direct about them. They're saying, here are horrible things that are happening, either uh, uh, directly or allegorically. And rather than use subtext, there's a great line from a show called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which is a comedy show about a vainglorious horror writer. And he says, I known authors who use subtext and they're all cowards <laughs> but there's some truth to that because being able to just speak frankly about issues that matter to us and speak frankly about our anxieties and our trauma my god have the last few years been traumatizing for everyone millions dead from a pandemic for crying out loud now is the time when people are a little more comfortable just dealing frankly with terrible things that are happening and seeing movies that are not afraid to just be emotionally vicious, emotionally tragic, uh, and, and take those emotions as seriously as they deserve to be taken a lot of the time, I think is, for some people, very cathartic. For other people, very challenging. Mm. But I think now is a great time for those movies to appear en masse. And A24 has really got their claws into a lot of them and made them a bit of their brand. And most of them are really, really good. What are some of the best examples you've made? Oh, in the A24 uh, No, it doesn't uh, have to be A24. In, in, ah. the, in the what you're speaking to, that people are really taking our modern anxieties to ah. heart. Well, well, I would argue that Jordan Peele's Get Out was a yeah. huge one. Um, you know, the original ending of Get Out uh, was actually originally much bleaker, and then they reshot it after Trump was elected because it felt like people desperately needed some kind of release they they just saying that everything is horrible might not be even useful right now so that's a movie that was very very aware of its timeliness uh and i i think it, it really really benefited from that um you can look at a film like midsommar uh which is yeah it's basically a a version of the wicker man which is also a great movie but i think that the emphasis on uh, the way uh, a woman's suffering is ignored by men uh, is a, something that makes that movie intensely relatable and relevant given many of the things going on in the world today and a couple of years ago when that movie uh, came out. I mean, there, there, there are many examples. Do you have a favorite? Is there one that really connected with you? 
Well, I have to say, Jordan Peele, I'm one of the ones that really like Us as well. Um, Us is great. Hereditary, I think, was incredible. It really freaked mm-hmm. me out. And Babadook. Yeah. Yes. As Babadook a mother, that one really, I think, is one of my favorite that really got me thinking. And I remember something yeah. like, which is a bit older, but The Others, remember that one with, Nicole, yeah, the, with both the Spanish version and yeah. the Nicole Kidman version. Those I thought yeah. were. But I also think that... that Things that when you talk about them seem a bit silly, but people are using themes of cell phones and Airbnbs and things like that, but doing it like Barbarian, which is an Airbnb hard, but they're using these things that a modern society that we know and in such really smart ways. No, and that's something that the horror genre, because the horror genre can be made very quickly and very inexpensively, it is very easy for horror genres to jump on whatever is new. And listen, I actually think sometimes this can be a problem. I think horror movies sometimes have this weird, uh, 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 almost irresistible urge to demonize literally everything that happens. Oh, is there a new invention? Well, how can it be used to kill people? Well, I'm not sure that's the most productive use of our time. But it does make sense because we're constantly looking for new things that give us anxiety, new things for us to be worried about. Uh, And something like an Airbnb is a really, really good starting point for horror. You're going into, you're going basically to live for a short period of time in someone else's house. There's something weirdly... Where you may be filmed. Exactly. That is that is absolutely 100% something that is super duper relevant. We've had a, a lot of films that are actually taking place. There's a small subgenre right now of films that take place entirely on a computer screen. We live on our computers, be it our phones or our laptops. And there are films like Unfriended, which is a little cheesy, but it's all about people on a Zoom call who are haunted by this mysterious presence that ends up killing them all. Or uh, there was a really, really great, uh, it's, it's a little bit more of a thriller, but I think it still counts for this conversation, a fantastic film starring John Cho called Searching. which takes place entirely on a computer as John Cho, uh, his daughter has gone missing and he is exploring her, her computer, her files, her social media to look for clues, but also to realize that his child has been living on social media so much that he doesn't know who she is. There are huge facets of her life that she is not sharing in the real world with the people around her that's something we can all connect with there are all we we all spend a large part of our lives to one extent or another some more so than others online and the way that we interact with the world that way can be very very different there was a really great movie that came out right at the start of the pandemic uh there was uh the, the there was a lockdown in march and then by like early that summer there was a horror movie out and it came out on shutter called host And it is one of the best horror movies of the decade so far. It was made during the pandemic. It is about the pandemic. It is about a group of people who are all in lockdown and they're only communicating through uh, uh, Zoom, Skype, whatever system they're using. And they decide for fun to hold an online seance. And that online seance goes very, very bad because, and this is very befitting the social situation of the time, there was one person who didn't take it seriously. There was one person who thought, oh, all of this stuff you're saying, all of these warnings you're saying about how don't do this or or it could go really, really bad for everyone in the room. Well, I'm going to be selfish and I'm just not going to do that. I'm be the person who allegorically doesn't wear the mask and I'm getting everyone killed because of it. And it's very sharp. It's very effective. It's genuinely frightening and it's totally tech based. It would be, it wouldn't Same even time, really be yeah. conceivable a year earlier that that, the the zoom thing sure but the idea of the lockdown that would be the whole movie you couldn't just use that as the base premise so there is so much that is this this world that we're living in is constantly evolving and if you pay any attention to the news there's something new to be terrified of every single day (laughs) please so it only makes sense that we we're looking for media that acknowledges what we're going through that explores what we're going through that can help us work through it that can help us conquer our fears i mean that's a big part of what horror movies are you get to experience your fears and then go home mm-hmm. it's we're, we're so afraid of so many things killing us or ending our lives whatever and when we see a horror movie we get to go through oh that's what that would be like well let's go get a sandwich and that's it's so much more pleasant to right. go through it that way than to do it in real life 
I don't remember if I read your you writing about this or if I heard you when you were you were speaking of the new Stephen King about the um, his cell phone. The new... Mr. Harrigan's phone. It's on Netflix. Yeah. Of course, the cell phone creates some problems for horror. Yeah. <laughs> you have to sort of get rid of that phone because if not, you'll you know the whole premise yeah. of just call someone if you're. Yeah, Car like you gets can, stuck or, yeah. If you're if you're ever playing a drinking game, there's like a there's you can definitely get totally smashed if you're just watching a bunch of horror movies and just take a drink anytime someone's phone doesn't work, has no reception, gets dropped or broken or just anything because 99 times out of 100 in a horror movie, if someone's cellular phone stops working, it's because if it works the plot wouldn't work. And this is something that if you watch a lot of older horror movies, you'll see how many of them are based on things like, oh, no, we have to drive across town to warn people that there's a killer yeah. in the house. And now just be boop, boop, and now they know. And that <laughs> changes things dramatically. Sometimes technology isn't always a boon for horror. So I totally get why there are horror movies that are kind of mad at phones. I totally <laughs> understand that because it makes the job a little harder there are movies that have used cell phones in a very clever way mr harrigan's phone is a little understated maybe too much so for its own good but that's a movie that basically like what if you were getting what if you were connected to somebody via a cell phone but from beyond the grave what would that mean how would you create a story that creates a parallel between being hyper connected to our phones constantly addicted to this piece of technology a smartphone in particular that isn't just a means of communication but is basically a permanent life hack you got a calculator on you you can check the stock reports you can do all kinds of things it's it's a it's 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 a damn miracle is what yeah. a phone is it's it's one of the most unbelievable pieces of the technology and we take it for granted and that's a movie that says there's a huge downside to that and fair enough but I have seen other movies use it really, really cleverly. This is more of a Hitchcockian thriller, but there was a really great movie starring Chris Evans that came out in the 2000s called Cellular. And Cellular is a very, that. very clever, it's a very clever film. Uh, Kim Basinger is kidnapped and she's put in a room and all she's really got is the broken remnants of a phone. And she's a science teacher, so she's able to make like one random call just by flicking wires. And she randomly ends up calling Chris Evans, who has a cell phone, and he and fortunately he's in the same area. Area. and the whole thing is he's got her on his phone and he has to save the day while keeping her on the phone which leads to what if i have to do something to solve a problem in a place where there's no reception wow. one of the, the first thing he's going to do is i'm going to go to the cops i'm going to hand them the phone the police department is where he has no reception so if he goes into the police department he'll drop the call and it will be useless and he can't do anything so it's all stuff like that and it's incredibly clever the whole movie is basically how do you solve problems with the cell phone how do you use a cell phone to create new dramatic situations that never existed before in cinema and you know the movie itself is you know it's a bit of a trifle but as an exercise in how to evolve suspenseful storytelling in the age of the smartphone it's really clever See, that's what horror is so good at. They're taking whatever it is that is a problem and then just using it yeah. <laughs> to freak The problem us is a solution. The problem is a solution. Like you look at things that can be considered like a social problem. And then you say to yourself, well, how do we turn that into a story? Uh, you, I think a, a while ago you mentioned The Exorcist, or maybe mm -hmm. I did. And The Exorcist was a, a great example of this. You know, The Exorcist came out of the 1970s at a time when a lot of Americans were really uncomfortable or increasingly comfortable with the fact that we're living in a more and more secular society organized religion was becoming something that was socially acceptable to question or reject in a way that it never really had been before and here comes the exorcist and it's a story of a single mother and her daughter is sick and a lot of that movie is just them trying scientifically to figure out what is wrong mm -hmm. and that is a, is a horror story in and of itself having a family member in particular a child who is ill ailing maybe dying and you don't know why and science and doctors aren't helping you and so turning to religion at that point and acknowledging the existence of religion from a person who was an atheist is a huge frightening turning point what if god exists and what if that means evil exists and that's the thing you wanted to reject in the first place. What if you had to go back to religion? What would that take? 
that's something that was taking a social issue of the time and heightening it to incredible effect. Right, really one of the best. I think I'm noticing, you know, see if you have also, there are films mm. like Spencer, Blonde, and even mm. Tar that we were mentioning before. They seem to be using a lot of horror tropes. Um, do you see that horror is impacting other genres today well, and how? That's a fair point. And I would argue that it always has. Horror has always been a prominent uh, a genre. And because of that theatricality that's often ingrained into it, horror filmmakers are allowed to make bigger swings visually, narratively, uh, that other filmmakers are then able to adapt for themselves. The camera work in Sam Raimi's low-budget Evil Dead movies was enormously influential on big-budget filmmakers, including Steven Spielberg. So we do see that. But in the cases that you mentioned, I think Spencer might be the best example. I love that movie. And that's a movie that is about Princess Diana's, uh, uh, like, the the last week before she rejected her place in the, in the British monarchy. And it is about how oppressive and terrible and terrible and terrifying it is for her and just to be trapped in this ancient manner that is full of generations of oppression and uh, silencing of women and the movie is framed very very much like a horror movie she even talks to a ghost there's I mean, basically ghosts yeah, in that movie that, there's a lot the, of movies and yeah. boleyn and in tar you have the noises she hears that are very sure. you know things like that in fact in fact one of the noises uh, that you hear in the movie tar there's a scene where she's out in the woods and she hears a scream they literally lifted that from the blair witch project oh really i, I, had I, no I just idea. read that the other day i thought that was really interesting but you know the this idea of using these stories of ghosts of the past in a literal or figurative manner for drama goes back really really far alfred hitchcock's first american movie rebecca is essentially a ghost story without an actual ghost in it. It's about a young woman played by Joan Fontaine who marries a rich widower uh, played by Laurence oh, Olivier. So it's an amazing movie. And she moves back into his house and the house is essentially, not not literally, but essentially haunted by the ghost of his first wife. Her paintings are everywhere. The servants are still following her wishes. Every single thing she does is judged against the memory of his former wife to the point that it ends up sending her into a nightmarish spiral. And that's something I think is very similar to Spencer as well. Mm -hmm. The ghosts of the past are something that horror movies have the freedom to take very, very literally. And dramas tend to take, you know, rather metaphorically, and a movie like Spencer is really bleeding the two together in a very, very clever way. I would argue something like Blonde is doing it so clumsily and brashly well, that's a terrible and, and, movie and it's, it's a cruel it's a cruel motion picture but you're right it is it is horrifying it is genuinely horrifying but i think it is horrifying to very little end i think mm -hmm. uh when i think of the movie blonde i think of a passion play i think of the stations of the cross except mm -hmm. uh their, their martyrdom of marilyn monroe is coupled with a bizarre and deeply disconcerting lack of respect and empathy for the person suffering. For her, right. Yeah, it's we're just here to watch her suffer. Her suffering is important to you, but you don't seem to actually care about her. And that's something that makes it deeply unpleasant. And that's something horror movies can be as well. There are some horror movies that are merely unpleasant, that they don't have anything more interesting on their minds. And sometimes that can be interesting, but frankly it's kind of half-assing it isn't it you're just taking the easiest thing to do you're just taking the murder the the pain and the suffering and you're just showing it to people in exchange for money and at that point i mean it's not literally a snuff film but you're going after that audience yeah, the people yeah. who just want to see grotesque intensity and again i'm not decrying that because there have been some good movies made with that mindset but usually they have something more on their minds excuse me almost knocked something over usually they have something more on their minds than that and something like blonde is annoyingly like just laser focused on misery to very little end the, the slasher genre of the genre so to speak talk about how you see that in the movies today Okay, well, the slasher genre is an interesting genre. It evolved uh, uh, over the course of a couple of decades. Um, it, ostensibly, it has its roots in things like Agatha Christie's and then there were none where a bunch of people are murdered over the course of the story and eventually we find out who did it. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, 
digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. And then films like Psycho and Peeping Tom in the 1960s and to a different extent films like Straight Jacket and Frenzy uh, kind of kept that alive. Uh, but around the time of Black Christmas followed by Halloween and people don't talk about it enough, but a made-for-TV movie from the screenwriter of Halloween starring Sally Field called Home for the Holidays. Also very, very much a formative film in that genre. In terms Ooh, of I haven't seen that one. I have to sell Most it. people yeah. haven't. It's super interesting. It, I, you can find it online. I don't know if it's got a proper release, but you might even just be able to find it on YouTube. It is like the, it is like the missing link in the slasher movie history, and nobody talks about it. And I while didn't even know, you know Sally Field had done one. Right? Exactly. I mean, there, there's actually, if you look at the history of made-for-TV movies, there's a lot of really interesting bits and bobs that people don't talk about. One of Steven Spielberg's first films was a made-for-TV haunted house movie uh, called Something Evil. And it stinks. It's, it's probably his worst movie. Like, it's not a good film. But it is his first stab at the horror genre, which is interesting because he would go on to do things like Jaws, which is one of the biggest horror movies of all time. And so is Jurassic Park, you know, a remake of Di Island of Dr. Moreau with dinosaurs instead of animal people. But anyway, the slasher genre was actually a really good example of how trends form in the horror genre because over the course of a couple of films and i think halloween really codified it and made it easy to copy people realize that there is a solid storytelling structure that can easily be lifted and we just put a new coat of paint on it put it in a new location give the killer a new mask maybe change the theme around a little bit and it's endlessly adaptable extremely cheap to produce and as a result, if you're even mildly successful, you can probably make your money back opening weekend. And then after that, it's nothing but net. So we had a gigantic slew of slashers in the 1980s, films like The Burning, the Friday 13th movies, supernatural slashers like Nightmare on Elm Street. And because it's just this loose framework, introduce characters, killer usually in mask, but usually not revealed until later, uh, kills them one by one they don't realize they're being killed one by one until there's only one or two people left in the end and then it becomes a proper confrontation simple effective always works uh that got so worn out over the course of a decade there were so many many of them good many of them lousy most of them fun uh there's so many copycats in the 80s that by the 90s the early 90s a lot of people consider this kind of wilderness era for the horror genre because we didn't have a guiding aesthetic there was no particular movie or genre that everyone was copying for a while there and a lot of really interesting movies were kind of free to come out in that period that had almost no precedent like they're just super bizarre and then ironically enough the next big wave was scream coming out and I, it was supposed to initially just put an end to the slasher genre and say, it's over. We we did it all. Mm -hmm. And ironically, it created a brand Even new market for it. Yeah. It showed that there is a whole new generation of teenagers who think, feel, and experience the world differently. And there is absolutely a market in, ironically, killing them. So we got a whole <laughs> bunch of great copycats on that. And that aesthetic still moves on today. We don't have as many prominent new slashers as we used to which i think is kind of a bummer but we do have long-running franchises still doing very very well the latest scream is a very very smart and i think very genuinely quite scary scream movie i mean they're not the kind of movies that make me lose sleep but in the theater i'm going ah you know losing my popcorn and then halloween ends come out and you know what that movie takes some big swings but it's making huge bank even though it's also coming out on streaming you know, people want to see a new Halloween movie. And because it was a relatively inexpensive production, they're going to make a fortune on it. Women are so interested in the horror genre. There's lots of interesting female leads in the movies coming out. Sure. Talk a little bit about that. Well, okay. Now, to be to clarify, in case anyone uh, can't tell from my voice, I'm a cis male. So my perspective on this has limitations, and I acknowledge that. And I want you to listen to other great uh, critics out there who are talking about these very issues, people like BJ Colangelo or Megan Navarro. Uh, I could go on. Uh, but there are a lot of great movies 
about the experience of being a woman in contemporary or historical society. And this has been the norm, again, more or less since the dawn of the genre. Uh, it's one of the great many things that are wonderful about the genre. The genre is also very, uh, uh, it's been argued, and I think quite successfully many times, that horror is also inherently queer. And I think that's also true to an extent. But we've got a lot of films that are tying into a lot of the issues around sexism and misogyny that we're living through today. And because of certain changes in the rhetoric, in terms of things that I think for a long time would have been considered rightfully shameful, to say in public are now being espoused by people quite openly. And now we've got Supreme court decisions being made that specifically target women's bodily autonomy. This is an oppressive time an increasingly oppressive time for a lot of people. And there are horror movies that are directly acknowledging that in ways that other mainstream films are afraid to right. like, they're just not as confrontational about it and not as willing to accept the problem. There's a movie that came out this year. I, I wasn't particularly fond of it. I thought it was rather ham fisted, but there's no arguing that it's basic premises on point. It's called men. Uh, it stars Jesse Buckley as a woman who goes to stay at uh, like a cottage for a vacation. And all of the men around her are played by the same actor. And all of them respond to her in various forms of uh, sexism, some more violently than others. Uh, and basically treating men as this sort of monolithic unit where either directly or indirectly they're part of the problem. And that's that's interesting. I think the execution is a little muddled in that one, but it's certainly on point. Um, you've got movies like there's a really, really great movie that came out earlier this year called Fresh, uh, which is about a young woman who. It's great, right? It's about a, it's it's about a young. Never she, go on any Tinder dates no, after that one. Oh <laughs> my god! But yeah, it's about a young woman. She meets like he seems like the perfect guy. He's played by Sebastian Stan. Very very nice. And, yes, um, and Daisy Edgar and he, Jones. And Daisy Edgar Jones is wonderful in this movie. And then it turns out he's anything but. And he has actually been. I, I don't want to ruin the movie, but let's just say he's been doing despicable, horrible things to women very specifically women he could do it to anyone but he's choosing to do it to women uh that's really rather terrifying a lot of the things that that movie uh brings up um you've got movies like pearl which are looking at the way uh, uh a young woman's particularly her libido but basically just any ambition that she had was sort of uh institutionally and familially stymied to horrifying extent uh, this movie takes place in the 1910s, but the movie goes to great pains to create parallels with the 2020s. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a um, Resurrection. Have you seen Resurrection? Yes. yes. Rebecca Hall. Wrong. Yeah, I I love that movie. She's That's basically a very stalked movie. by her ex. Um, yeah, so, and yeah. so it's you were introduced to her, and she's this incredibly uh, uh, powerful, confident single mother businesswoman, uh, very in control of her life and her sex life, and then her former husband comes back into the picture and he's played by Tim Roth. And just by being present, he doesn't even do anything directly for a while. Just by being present, he completely changes her behavior and she starts reverting back to these defensive, emotional and very physical uh, uh, aspects of her personality. Then it just shows you just how insidious and how uh, uh, vile abuse can be and how it becomes like sort of carved into our dna and creates a scar tissue we can't really get a hold of rebecca hall has a monologue in that movie that i think is a masterclass in yeah, filmmaking. It's, it's one of the to, yeah. it's a long one it's one shot pearl did one of these as well one month after another super weird but just one long shot of the performer talking about really deeply uncomfortable things and laying out the horror of the story while also laying their whole soul very bare mm -hmm. and both resurrection and pearl are those two monologues I think are some of the best acting I've seen in the last couple of years. And that's something that was no surprise from Rebecca Hall. I think she's one of the best performers that we have, but yeah, Mia Goth proved herself to be a really incredible performer this year between that and next. So uh, yeah, I know I could go on, but like there, there is a ton. Yeah. You were mentioning it's a, a fantastic portrayal of a single mom in the exorcist. Mm -hmm. You have, yeah. you know, the Babadook you have, Yes. Laurie Strobe. And I mean, both Janet mm. Lee and her daughter. I mean, mm. these are memorable female performances in a genre that we'll never forget. And, Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, I was referring and to. Jamie Lee Curtis as well. There, there's then there's many who are just absolutely wonderful. I mean, one of the first great uh, uh, horror movie stars was Faye Ray, who would appear in films King like Kong. The Mystery of the Wax Museum and King so. Kong and uh, The Most Dangerous Game as well. Um, 
it's a genre that is able to talk about how women are directly attacked in society and how in some cases it is socially acceptable to do so no matter how wrong and evil that is and as a result women are allowed to take center stage because it is a story about them in times when men were otherwise in uncomfortably dominating conversations and yeah, that's one of the great things about the horror genre. Now, the, the irony is that you do have to watch women suffer a lot. And that's a conversation we need to have because that's not always that's not always good. Some people take that to grotesque lengths. But within the genre, there is a mechanism for feminism that is, I think, completely undeniable, but also a delicate tightrope walk to walk sometimes. But I'm thinking something like Hereditary, also such a yeah. great performance. And, you know, oh, Tony Collette, Collette, Florence Pugh in Midsummer. I mean, irregardless of the genre, they're incredible mm. performances. And it's weird how unrecognized they go at the yes. end of the year. Tony Collette should have been nominated. Lupita Nyongo should have been nominated for oh us, I think. Uh, I, I, I could go on and on. It's, it's, it's happened every once in a while that a horror movie performance has been recognized by a larger awards body. Uh, Sigourney Weaver was, was Oscar nominated for the movie Aliens the sequel. Mm -hmm. Very unusual, but totally deserved. She's amazing in that movie. But yeah, these are incredible, nuanced, exciting performances from some of the best performers working today. And they have these roles that aren't necessarily always as exciting as the roles that they get in mainstream Hollywood films. It's very frustrating. Approaching the end, I'm going to put you on the spot a bit. Oh, no. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know your favorite jump scare. Oh, okay. That's a really <laughs> fun question. Uh, you know, hmm, that is a fun question. Uh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go classical. I'm going to skew classical. It's sometimes considered the very first jump scare. It's from a movie called Cat People. And it ended up uh, uh, kind of defining a particular brand of jump scare as well, uh, where there's a character in the movie. They're walking down the street. They think they might be being followed. Something might horrible might happen. We're kind of with them. You're ready. You're ready for the big reveal. Is the cat person going to show up? And then Boom, a bus, a very loud bus just drives in completely banal, but very, very loud and breaks the tension. Now, this movie is, uh, I'm sorry, this particular brand of jump scare is often called the Luton bus. And it is any scare in a movie that exists to fake out the audience. That is there to give the audience the, the thrill of anticipation without paying it off yet, because now it's not the time for that. Right. So you watch that movie. Cat People is a movie that is, speaking of feminism, by the way, Cat, the, uh, the original Cat People. And this is a movie that is about uh, a, a young woman. She's an immigrant in, in America. She's from Eastern Europe. And she is worried that she is tainted by her experiences in the past, by her uh, culture, which has told her that she, and in particular, like her femininity and her sexuality makes her a monster and she ends up meeting an american who's just like it's okay they're there i'll protect you i'm an american and you and your silly ways are unimportant to that and you can just live and be my wife and that will be great <laughs> and she's like no see i have this serious problem actually and i'm a, i'm genuinely terrified of like physical intimacy and i'm worried it will bring out a literal monster in me and he's like oh you women <laughs> and the whole thing is he marries her and the marriage is miserable because her needs are not being met at all. And she actually can literally turn into like a panther. And if you watch the movie in its original context, it seems pretty clear that the filmmakers were trying to say, oh, how frightening for that man <laughs> to have ah, a wife right. who's a cat person. But when you watch it today, you realize that no, he's the villain. She's protecting herself. She's, she's protecting herself. She is trying to uh, operate in a system that is designed to hurt her. And that movie is great. That movie is, is super smart. It's very, very feminist by the standards of the day. And I think even today. And yeah, it's it's a stunner. And there's a lot of great movies, sadly, about the societal uh, uh, tendency to ignore women. I talked about um, uh, made-for-TV horror and how there's a lot of really good films in that uh, uh, medium that tend to get overlooked in the horror genre. And one of them is called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, uh, which is a story about a young woman who... Um, She's she's married, her husband's off at work all day, and she's worried that her house has been plagued by little monsters. Now, you could argue that that's a metaphor for like vermin being in the house. But regardless, what she's saying is she's trying to tell her husband something is wrong. Something is frightening me. Something is bad. And he 
it completely ignores her and attempts to basically gaslight her into thinking that there are no other problems when of course the monster is very very real and literal it's a blunt allegory but it's a highly effective allegory and the remake they made with katie holmes isn't bad but go watch the original it's much better oh interesting and what a great answer i had no idea about that jump scare and the whole history of of the yeah, jump scare. it's really really cool actually when you look at like everything that everyone like loves about horror movies goes way further back than they probably realize and it's really really fun to explore the roots of the genre okay the, this may sound insensitive but maybe not in the context that we're talking about your favorite okay. kill <laughs> Okay, my favorite kill, if I have to pick, it's not from a particularly good movie, but my God, is it an amazing sequence. Uh, did you ever see the movie Ghost Ship starring Juliana Margulies? No. Okay, so uh, this came from a production company called Dark Castle. And initially, and going back to William Castle, who I mentioned earlier, their ethos was we're going to remake old William Castle movies. And the first couple of films were, and they were big hits. They did that remake of A House on Haunted Hill starring uh, Jeffrey Rush, and they did that remake of 13 Ghosts, starring Matthew Lillard and Tony Shalhoub. And those are very, very fun movies. And then they started kind of making their own kind of similarly themed, uh, you know, haunted house jump scare kind of films. And one of them is about a haunted cruise ship. So it's a, a, a sort of a ghost ship in that it's, you know, it's it's a desiccated husk just out on the water and a bunch of people go in to try to salvage it and they find ghosts. The opening of the movie if you, I'm going to tell everyone listening to this right now, pause it, watch it online, because I'm going to okay. I'm going to tell you about it, but it's cooler if you experience it for yourself, then come back. It's like two minutes long, but I'm going to describe it right Ghost now, okay? Ship. Okay, I've given everyone an opportunity to pause. Okay, so it, it opens when the ship is still active and there are people on it, and it's this very kind of old-timey, titanic, oh, everything's great, none of us could possibly die, and they're all having a, a, a dance on the deck of the ship, and it's very, very sweet. And there's a young actress. I think it might have been a young Emily Browning now that I think about it. Um, like a, there's a little girl and she's just like everyone's dancing and she's dancing with the captain. And like it's all so very cute. And the uh, you know, the, the band is playing and oh, isn't this super great? And then it turns out that there's like a high tension wire uh, that is loose and ends up just popping loose and slices everyone on the dance floor in half of oh. <laughs> And there's this horrifying moment where the music stops and no one's top of their body has separated from the bottom of their body yet, but they all realize what has happened and they're all just looking at each they other. They have a second. In absolute, yeah, in absolute terror and horror. And then they just splat. And it is just one of the most gruesome and, it, and, be, and it's not just scary because it's gruesome. It's scary because it's sad. It's scary because there's this, this sweet moment. It's a tragedy that occurs and everyone has a moment to appreciate the tragedy. It's not like, oh, hey, you're wearing a scary mask. Slice. Oh, I'm dead. Like, no, you have a moment to go, oh, this is a horrible thing that has happened to me and everyone. What a horrible way to go. Like, oh it's, my God. it's so brutal. It's such a great scene in an otherwise, at best, okay movie. But it's one of the best openings to any horror movie ever. And the kill is just gross and amazing. And within the genre, what scares you personally the most? The religious things hmm. or the a particular monster or slash? That's I mean, what? That, that's a great question. And I think it's a question that I think everyone should ask themselves at yes. some point because it, this horror movies connect to us in different ways. And you were talking before about how sort of the difference between uh mainstream and and horror movies though they're you know they make a lot of money but they don't make as much as avengers endgame and that's because when you're making those gigantic movies and you're trying to make a billion dollars off of it you have to try to make them appeal to literally everyone which means sanding off any in any edge to right. it anything that might not appeal to somebody you have to avoid at all possible if at all possible whereas horror movies because there's a smaller budget involved they have more freedom to hit people differently and say like, not everyone's going to want to see this horror movie, but the people who do will go because it hits them really, really hard. Um, for me, I would say that uh, many of the things that are issues that I worry about in real life, I have had mental health issues my entire life. I've struggled with that. And uh, movies like, for example, Hereditary, which I find in its construction a little clunky but its depiction of people terrified that they are part of a multi-generational not just trauma but mental illness that it that will be passed on through proximity to abusive people um that hits me very 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 hard 
Um, no, and it's and it's very, very, it's very, very disturbing. Th- these are things that I worry about. Will my mm-hmm. mental health be a problem for myself and others? And mm-hmm. seeing that play out with such intensity and with such an uncompromising uh, perspective, they're not trying to gloss over it in any way, makes that movie incredibly intense for me. Um, so that is probably the one that hits me hardest, and a lot of movies connect to that directly or indirectly. Uh, but yeah, that's probably one of them. We're heading into Halloween. Uh, a couple of your best recommendations for the oh my goodness. the listeners. Well, as I said, there are different horror movies for different kinds of people. So I want to recommend a few uh, films that are very disparate uh, and uh, might connect oh, to different people. Um, so uh, if, you're interested, if you're interested in something like actually Halloween-y, like actually like of the spirit of the holiday, there's a lot of films that I think everyone knows about. The Halloween movies, for example, or Hocus Pocus. But um, there's a great anthology movie that came out a couple of years ago that people don't talk about enough called Tales of Halloween. And it is a story of a whole bunch of scary things happening on Halloween in one town on the same night. It is an anthology film from a lot of different directors. Most horror anthologies have like three or four installments. This one has, I think, like two dozen. So they're all very short, very punchy, little scary stories of things that happened on Halloween. And most of them are great. I would argue that there is a really impressive success ratio. I'd say at least 80% of them are rock solid horror shorts. And the other ones, because of the nature of the film, are so short that if you're not really feeling it, You've moved on to a good one in a couple of minutes. So that's a really, really great film. There's a lot, there's a great bit in that one. It's the climactic installment that's about man-eating jack-o'-lanterns. And I'm like, how have I not seen that one? That's such a good idea. My God, what's so cool? Let's do that. So that's a really, really fun one. Uh, There's a really cool horror comedy that's very much um, a combination of uh, werewolves and the movie Clue uh, called Werewolves Within. That came out a couple of years ago. I think it came out in 2020. Might have been last year, actually. Uh, But it is incredibly funny and legitimately, you know, rather violent and very uh, successful in a horror movie way. But it's about a a werewolf that is attacking a very, very small town and no one in the town knows who it is. And the accusations start to fly. And it's just incredibly clever and well-constructed. And I highly recommend it. Uh, There's another really good one, I think, for like the slumber party crowd that got kind of overlooked. It's a Netflix original called Vampires versus the Bronx. And it is about a bunch of kids in the Bronx who find out that the rich white people who have been gentrifying the Bronx are literally vampires. (laughs) So it's very, very on point. But the kids are really, really great. The writing is really, really funny. It's it's perfectly good for like a a middle school slumber party. And and if you're you're like, oh, why don't they make movies like The Goonies and Monster Squad anymore? that's great. They do. This is a really, really good example of it. Uh, Let's see. If you want to go the classical route, a movie I think some people forget is a Halloween movie is Arsenic and Old Lace starring Cary Grant. Cary Grant plays a guy a who goes one. to visit his he goes visit his two kindly aunts who live in a cemetery on Halloween and he's going to tell her that he's getting married and uh, he finds out that day that actually his aunts have been serial killers this whole time and they're hiding bodies everywhere and it's just watching Cary Grant react to finding dead bodies everywhere <laughs> is just comedy gold uh, but we already mentioned a few that I kind of wanted to mention from like this year. I think Fresh is really, really great. That's on Hulu. People need to see that. The Fear Street trilogy on Netflix is incredibly excellent. And I hope more people see that uh, as well. There's a really wild film that came out, I think, last year that is one of my favorites in a while called Psycho Goreman, uh, which is... Um, so, like, you know those movies about, like, kids who find, like, a magical creature, like E.T., and it kind of warms their hearts and makes everyone learn a valuable lesson? Well, imagine if the kid found Psycho Cthulhu. Oh, like, 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 a, like, an ev- like an evil, evil, all-powerful supervillain god. And because of the construct of the plot, that god now has to do whatever the little kid says. And the little kid is also a piece of work. They're not, like, a cherubic child. They're actually kind of a bad person uh it is incredibly acerbic the, the it's it's cheap but the visual effects are very inventive there's a lot of really interesting monster designs and great makeup effects oh, wow. and it's very very funny but it's very very dark it's for it's for it's i got a mean-spirited streak that i think a lot of people love um not it's not for everyone but if that sounds at all appealing to you and you missed it please see psycho gorman it is so funny we quote it constantly at my house it is so <laughs> damn good so yeah 
Okay, that's great. Um, I realize I, I questioned sure. or forgot that I wanted to get in. I didn't specifically ask you about these directors these past few mm. years. We've talked about Jordan Peele, but like mm-hmm. Robert Eggers, Jennifer Kent, um, mm. Ari Aster. Do sure. you see them continuing in this genre? Sort of what's their trajectory and, and well, why is this so good for them? Well, again, I, it's it's hard to say. Many people start in the horror genre and then eventually branch out. Some manage to make it uh, their whole career, either because they want to or because they get pigeonholed. Um, I, I have no say in the future of their career. They're all very, very talented. Uh, but many of them do seem to be hovering around the genre and they seem to be genuinely interested. They don't have just like one horror movie in them and want to move on. Uh, I think Jordan Peele has made, to varying degrees, three of the best horror movies of the last decade. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I loved Nope. Nope just killed me. It's such a smart movie. Um, so that's really, really great. I think Ari Aster... genuinely has his pulse on what makes people deeply uncomfortable. I worry sometimes that Ari Aster is going to move into uh, the sort of uh, non-horror drama field and is going to make, is is just going to overplay his hands so much that people are just going to not be able to take how intense it is. And it's going to feel like a horror movie anyway. Then again, Maybe he'll do a lighthearted rom-com and prove he's good (laughs) at that. Anything is possible. Uh, Jennifer Kent moved on from The Babadook to do a movie called The Nightingale, which is actually an Australian uh, uh, Western, essentially. Mm -hmm. But it's got a horrific element. There's a truly horrifying, shocking act of violence at the beginning of that movie. But I would argue that it's not really a horror movie uh if such a thing can be said it's i don't want to gatekeep the horror genre but it feels more like a western than anything else and uh, eggers but doing nosferatu eggers is doing nosferatu he's been t- he's been talking about this since forever like he he did the witch the witch is also one of the best horror movies of the last decade uh he did the lighthouse which is fantastic he did the northman which isn't it's got horror elements but that's more of like an epic yeah. uh, uh historical fantasy than anything else uh, but yeah, he's he's remaking Nosferatu, which has been done multiple times. Uh, 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 Werner Herzog did it with Klaus Kinski. That movie is fantastic. There's a really, really fun uh, uh, take on it called Shadow of the Vampire, starring Willem Dafoe, who was Oscar nominated for it. Uh, yeah, it's a great Loved movie. It. And it's all about how, what if when Nosferatu was made in 1922, we're in the centennial, isn't that fun? But when Nosferatu was made, what if the vampire was actually a vampire? Vampire. <laughs> so good. It's so much Fun. And I think it's worth noting, I think Nosferatu is a really interesting example here where that movie, it's a horror movie, it was very successful in its time. It's kind of the only movie most people can name off the top of their heads from 1922. Yes, true. I mean, granted, that's because a lot of that media has been lost and that is truly tragic. But that's the impact that that movie had. And ironically, that movie was nearly sued into oblivion. It's an unofficial adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bram Stoker's estate sued because it was, they just knocked it off. They just changed the names. Everything else about it's from Dracula. Um, They sued and tried to have every copy of it destroyed. And thank goodness they failed because it's one of the best movies ever made. So, yeah. And it's going to be so interesting to see how Eggers moves it into our time. I mean, what yeah. his Nosferatu means for us today. I'm very, very curious. It's been a long time since we've had a, a straightforward, I mean, that's what basically about Nosferatu is, you change the names, but basically a straightforward adaptation of Dracula. Everyone tends to take a lot of those like classic stories like Dracula and Frankenstein and say like, what if we did it a little different? What if yeah. this one's all about Igor? What if we change the, and every once in a while, I think it's important to go back and just tell the story the class, and Nosferatu. Yeah. And uh, maybe he'll switch it up. Maybe he'll do something completely bizarre and, and different with it. Or maybe he'll just make a fantastic Nosferatu or maybe it'll stink. I don't know. Like I, I haven't seen it yet. You have to keep an open mind, but like in any case, I'm super interested. Uh, he's one of the more interesting uh, visual storytellers of this generation of horror filmmakers. And I think his adherence to historical accuracy could make his portrayal of Nosferatu really interesting because Nosferatu has never really been about that. It's always been kind of existing in this kind of dream state, this German expressionist, uh, you know, this living nightmare. It's so much so about the visual maybe nightmare. he'll, yeah, I mean, maybe he'll make it like super realistic and try to say something that way. But who can say? I'll, I look forward to seeing it and judging it on its own terms. Yeah, we also have Nicolas Cage coming as Dracula. I understand, right? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's called Renfield, and like, yeah. yeah down like let's do yeah, that let's Nicholas uh, Cage is Dracula how have we not done that 
Yeah. <laughs> should have been done decades ago. My God. He was in a great movie in, uh, I think it was 89, called Vampire's Kiss. Mm-hmm. You ever seen that one? It's yes, the one where he yes. ate a cockroach. Yeah. And that's the one where he plays like a, it's it's like American Psycho if Christian Bale becomes convinced that he's literally a vampire. And that movie is, I, mean, I still think that's maybe his best performance. That performance is unhinged. Like, that's... my God. I mean, it's, it feels so right for that movie. It's so weird. I got. I digress. Sorry. So much to look forward to. Um, William Bibiana, will you come back and talk to me again uh, about these things? This was great. Please, thank yeah. you. Yeah, anytime. It's been an honor. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to William Bibiani. Follow him on Twitter at William Bibiani with two B's and check out his work on The Wrap and on Patreon, the critically acclaimed network, as well as Salt Cat Soap. And thank you so much for listening. This is Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Happy Halloween. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.